Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. And now here's your host, John Lauk. Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. We are joined today by John Butler. John Butler taught for many decades at Yale University and is known for his expertise in American religious history. John has now retired and lives in the Twin Cities, and he has some very deep Minnesota roots. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Tell us about those roots and how you came to be a child of Minnesota. <laughs> well, it's a, I'm a child of Minnesota via Arkansas. Uh, that's because my Minnesota parents, who were both, my mother was born in Sherman, South Dakota, and my dad was born in Hector, Minnesota. Uh, my dad was an engineer, um, agricultural engineer for the Soil Conservation Service and stationed in Arkansas. And he uh, moved back to Minnesota in 1946, and I went through the Hector, Minnesota public schools from kindergarten through the 12th grade. So my whole growing up experience, in fact, is really 100 miles west of Minneapolis in a farm town of 1,000 people. What was that experience like? Tell us about your hometown. My hometown was pretty close to uh, Garrison, Kaler's Lake, Wobegon. It was um, mainly German, uh, Lutherans and Catholics, and a scattering of Anglo-Saxon uh, Protestants, and um, we had two Lutheran churches, one Swedish and one German Lutheran, and no one knew the actual names of the congregations because we just called them the German and Swedish Lutheran churches. And um, we also had two Jewish families, and one family ran the grocery store and one ran the clothing store. And so it was probably very unusual in that regard, and both of them happened to be friends of my parents. And so it was a it was a slightly more cosmopolitan small town than one might one imagines uh, Minnesota small towns to be. But there are others, so it wasn't unique. How did you get from that little town in Minnesota to being a professor of history at Yale? Uh -huh. Well, I got there. I suppose you could say I got there because when I was a senior in high school and had gotten some college catalogs, um, and I had them splayed all over the living room, or I didn't have that many, um, my dad walked in and he looked and he said, oh, I see you're getting some catalogs. He said, you know, I was thinking, I think that you will be just fine. <laughs> so. I went to the University of Minnesota. That ended my college search, and I went to the University of Minnesota, and I really liked taking history classes. And I stayed at Minnesota f not only for a BA, but for a PhD. And then in early American history, colonial American history, and um, I taught in California, in Bakersfield, California, and at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And then I applied for a job at Yale University, and <laughs> lo and behold, I got it. And I did that because it was a job in American religious history, and I had slightly begun to shift from teaching colonial history to teaching religious history more broadly. Let's talk about your time at the University of Minnesota earning your PhD. Who did you study with, and uh, what was your major field of study? My major field of study was colonial American history, and my original advisor was a now deceased historian named Derek Rutman 
who had done some very nice, who did some very nice books on uh, Puritan Boston, but he left in my fifth year, and so the American Revolutionary historian John Howe became my advisor, and he was really wonderful, and um, that's how I started. I did courses with a religious historian who was briefly at Minnesota, named Timothy L. Smith, who later went on to Johns Hopkins. Um, but I and I also did courses in American immigration history and American African American history with Alan Spear, who later became much better known as a Minnesota politician. He was the pro tem president pro tem of the Minnesota Senate, um, and I TA'd for him. And um, I had a wonderful experience. I wouldn't have trade I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in the world, in, including. Well, I often said when I was in New Haven that I got my degree at a real university. <laughs> Theirs might be older, but mine was real. <laughs> you mentioned Alan Spear. Um, I recently read his book on the Great Migration to Chicago, yeah. and uh, I believe he was a sociologist at the University of Minnesota. Is that, or was well, he a historian? He was a historian. Okay. And he, was, he had a Yale PhD. His, his, his advisor was John Blum. And... Um, Alan was a fabulous historian, and I've always thought, well, I know he wanted to become a politician, and he was really good at being a politician, uh, but it, he also, it's a shame he didn't keep writing history because he was a superb, first-rate historian, absolutely first-rate historian. His history of African-American Chicago was excellent. I was recently working on a project where I needed to figure out the basic story of the Great Migration to Chicago, and I went through dozens of books because it's a very rich field, but I found his book, published in 1967, I think, was the best of the lot. So yeah. he was a great... There's, there's a funny story about that book, and that is that Alan discovered not long after he had published that the press, the University of Chicago Press, pardon me for telling this story, but anyway... Uh, they had a picture on the front cover that turned out to come from South Africa. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a Chicago picture. And Alan didn't know it was very embarrassing anyway. That's funny. Well, at the University of Minnesota, there was a very strong tradition, at least in earlier decades from when you were there, of studying the region. And I'm thinking of people like Solon Buck, and uh, we are conducting this interview right now at the Minnesota Historical Society, where Solon Buck was one of the first directors, but he also taught at the University of Minnesota. Uh, also, Theodore Blegen was at the University of Minnesota and a strong proponent of studying Minnesota and the region. Did you sense any of that energy there when you were at Minnesota? I have to say no. Um by the time that, when I was a graduate student, which would be in the 60s, um, I got my degree. Well, I left in 1971 and got my degree in 1972. I was a graduate student mainly in the 60s. Um, there was not an emphasis on regional history. And um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know how and why that happened. Part of it probably stemmed from a notion that uh, for Minnesota to make its name in the profession, it really needed to plow fields in, um, I, I dare say, broader American history, uh, the colonial period, 19th century, and that didn't mean studying what was sometimes derisively termed local history. Well, I think that in the, in the I'm not sure when this started, but 
Certainly in the 60s, the notion of what was called local history was not a good, was not seen to be a good thing. Do you think that this was true of the profession generally? Was the uh, emphasis on regional and local history declining across the field, or was there a particular problem at Minnesota? No, I think it was very common. <clears throat> I think the only field in which it wasn't common is Southern history, and that largely has to do with the Civil War and slavery. Um, but um, And later, of course, the history of the West has come to be a prominent field. But the history of the Midwest and the history of the of the East as a region um, has just declined and has never really been revived in, in, a, in a fulsome way. Not in the way that the Southern uh, Historical Association has revived it or the Western Historical Association has helped to revive Western history. You mentioned uh, Western history and uh, one of our Mutual friends is Howard Lamar at Yale University, one of your colleagues for many years. And uh, Howard Lamar I, told me a few times about this story of how it came to be that there was a History of the American West course offered at Yale and what a victory he thought this was for the field. And indeed, this ever since then, the field began to grow and uh, become legitimized and more and more lines uh, were opened up in terms of hiring professors in the history of the American West. It's a great success story. Yeah, even, even when I came to Yale in 1985 and Howard um, was still on the faculty, he wasn't really teaching full-time anymore because he'd been the dean and then he became acting president of the university. Um, but um, his successor, Johnny Farragher, taught a course that the students always jokingly called Cowboys and Indians. And that was the Western history course. The question is, if, if you know, I don't know if someone had taught a Midwestern history course, what would they have called it? it you know, it didn't, it wouldn't, I, it's hard to say what, what would they say, you know? Uh, well, they hadn't yet read Garrison Keillor, so I don't know, green, you know, lime jello salad? I don't know what they would call the course. But that doesn't sound so intriguing. Right. <laughs> you know, it's intriguing to those of us who grew up in the Midwest, but it's not so intriguing to anybody else. Well, one of the things that Johnny Farragher does, and I think he is to be uh, applauded for this, is that he has a very broad conception of the West. And his first most famous book is about Illinois. And he sees the West as sort of a progression from Ohio out to California. And he spends a lot of time in his work talking about Ohio and Indiana and Minnesota. Yeah. But that is rare in my experience among Western historians. They tend to see the West as the trans-Missouri West. And so for a lot of Western historians, the Midwest just drops out of the story. I think, I think that's very true. And the catch is, in the, if we did Midwestern history, um, how would we define it? Because not all Midwesterners think of themselves. I, you know, as someone who grew up in rural Minnesota, I never thought of Ohio as the Midwest. It never occurred to me that it was the Midwest. It was industrial. You know, when you thought of Ohio, you thought of Cleveland. Or maybe Cincinnati, but mainly you thought of Cleveland. Cleveland doesn't seem very Midwestern to me. It didn't. It didn't as I was growing up. And Illinois, well, you know, y y farming areas. But who thinks of farming areas? You thought of Chicago. You know, how is Chicago the Midwest? Well, yes, 
but it's not quite like the upper Midwest. Uh, it's not Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, some part of Iowa or Wisconsin. Um, so there are different, uh, and of course, the, you know, there's the history of the West, you know, to what extent is the modern, is, is modern Los Angeles part of the history of the West? Well, it is, but it isn't always the way that people think of it. They don't always think of it that way. That's uh, interesting, your comment about Ohio. Uh, a couple of years ago, Garrison Keeler was visiting Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and uh, I was talking to him about this project I had and my book about the Midwest that I was working on. And his first question uh, immediately was, well, is Ohio in the Midwest? And I spent 25 minutes trying to defend the idea that Ohio was in the Midwest, which I wasn't 100% sure of to begin with, but he was very adamant about uh, figuring out what the exact boundaries were. So this is a always a tough initial first step when you begin to talk about the field. What's in and what's out? You know, I think I didn't change my mind. I didn't think about the question much, but I didn't think change my mind much about is Ohio in the Midwest until after we moved to move to New Haven and came back for the summer, because we always spent the summer in Minnesota and Minneapolis, and drove back and drove across Pennsylvania. And then when the freeway drops down just before the Ohio border and you come into agricultural country so you're in the in the in the old mountain so to speak of the hills of Pennsylvania and when you come down and I had this feeling that oh I'm home because here are cornfields I that was the first time I ever thought that Ohio was in the Midwest <laughs> If uh, you're just joining us, I am talking with John Butler. Uh, John Butler is was a longtime professor of history at Yale University, and he is the former president of the Organization of American Historians. We are talking today in the Minnesota Historical Society. We are talking about Midwestern history. I am your host, John Lauk. John, I wanted to uh, return to your days at the University of Minnesota in graduate school and ask you about an important figure for our field, and that is John Jurdy, who I believe you knew for many years. Can you tell us about John and his work? Yes, um, John Jurdy uh, received his PhD from the University of Minnesota after I had left, and I actually met him through a mutual friend at history conferences, so I really didn't know John Jurdy as a student at Minnesota. But John Jurdy um, wrote very important works on immigration to the Midwest, especially Norwegian immigrants. Uh, part of it, one of the, his first book, which was his dissertation, um, was a study of Norwegian immigrants to uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin. And one of, the, one of the areas, weirdly, is the county in which I grew up, although the county in which I grew up is the size of the state of Rhode Island, or almost. And, uh, that part he studied was the farthest distant from my own hometown. But neither, no, no, no matter. Um, he was a highly disciplined, very imaginative historian um, whose books on the Midwest really helped bring distinction to a field that not many people really thought of as a field, which is the history of the Midwest. I think that the stature of his work on the Midwest really uh, were books that helped define the Midwest as a potential field of, of serious study 
that because they were because he was able to demonstrate through the immigration process, through tensions about religion in the Midwest, through cultural conflicts in the Midwest, how the Midwestern story was a good part of the American story. And, um, and I think in that regard, uh, his work is just exceptionally important. And um, as you know, he died some, very young some years ago as a tragedy. And, um, of a, uh, and um, you know, we, we, I, I, we miss him. Yeah. And uh, we miss him because his work was really so imaginative and vital. I'm uh, glad to report that uh, his memory will live on somewhat because of uh, John Butler's efforts to name the annual book prize uh, offered by the Midwestern History Association, the John Jurdy Prize. Um, and uh, that will be awarded again next year. Um, and uh, at our recent meeting here in St. Paul, uh, we gave out our... Um, uh, we gave out uh, our prize, our John Jurdy Prize, to a young art historian from University of California, Riverside, who did a very interesting book about the impact of barnstorming on the Midwest and people's concept of the idea of flyover country and the, um, and the divisions of the Midwest into little farmsteads. Um, I wanted to uh, move on to the subject of a chapter that you have written for a book that uh, we are working on about reviving Midwestern history. And the subject of that chapter is the religious history of the Midwest. How do you conceive of the religious history of the Midwest and how does it differentiate itself from other regions? Uh, well, uh, we can start with an image, and the image is a contemporary image, and that is Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon, uh, which is largely a story about uh, Protestants, mainly Lutherans, and Catholics. Um, Garrison, uh, Keillor has been exceptionally successful in promulgating that story, and it's a very charming story. Here's the catch to it. On the one hand, Keillor is correct. He's right that in small Midwestern towns, religion it was really the center of much of the intellectual and social action in community after community. It simply is true. The other story happens to be the public schools. But in any case, um, religion was, is really imp important. It was the center of organization. It's where so many people interacted. And um, it, that's important. Catch is, is that it's far from being a story of just Protestant Catholics. The Midwest happens to be, I will make the following argument, the single most divert, religiously diverse region of the United States. It, and it has been since the conquest by Europeans um, because of the, so many different Native American, American Indian religious groups, which are not all the same. Then there are so many different immigrant groups in the early years, in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century. There was huge tension between um, Lutherans, Catholics, and not only just, but also German Catholics who were different than Italian Catholics, who were also different than Polish Catholics, and none of them, despite the efforts of the Roman Catholic Church, they didn't 
didn't want to, the church would like them all to worship in in in, par, in single parishes where they could all worship together, but they wanted to worship separately because they really wanted to speak Polish or they wanted to speak German or they wanted to speak Italian, and just and that the language is, signifies the difference. The same thing is true among Lutherans. Uh, Lutherans divided up at one time. There were over 20 different Lutheran groups, just in the uh, just mainly concentrated in the Midwest. Some of them separated by language, but also some of them separated by theology. And then they slowly have come back together again, and now divided mainly by theology. The language has dropped out. They all speak English, and uh, but now they have theological differences. But there are also Ameri there's a, l a large scale a Jewish immigration to the Midwest. Um, the Midwest has spawned uh, unique religious groups such as the I Am movement, in out of based still exists and based in in suburban Chicago. Uh, and um, there's been a revival of Native American religious traditions. So um, the Midwest, as a region, has been a kind of spiritually creative region, and uh, we—that's an important <coughs> part of American of American history. So that whereas we often think of the Midwest as being religiously homogenous, mostly Protestant, and with some Catholics thrown in, in fact, it's extraordinarily diverse, and that diversity has given huge amounts of energy to each one of the groups that has um, prospered in the Midwest. Does this religious diversity make the Midwest much different as a region, as opposed to the South, which is heavily Baptist, or the Northeast, which is heavily congregational? Or the West, which is uh, the most secular region of the United States. So I would make the argument that the answer to that is yes. The answer to your question is yes. Um, that there is greater homogeneity and less diversity in the East, the Northeast, uh, than there is uh, in the Midwest, and that's also true in the South. It's significantly greater, less, there's less diversity in the American South, uh, religious diversity, than, uh, than in the Midwest. And then um, the diversity may be fairly similar in the West, but the West also, uh, whether we're talking about um, the north, the northwest, that is Oregon and uh, Washington, which are the, the least, um, if I'll use the word church, I, mean, I could also say synagogue or mosque, but in any case, the least, uh, re where the least religious affiliation by uh, adults in the United States. So the West is a little bit different. Um, the West is also very diverse, but it's not as diverse as the Midwest. So the Midwest has a kind of both exceptional diversity and also exceptional religious intensity. Do you think this diversity and pluralism increases tolerance in the region as opposed to the South, say, <laughs> where there's a more dominant religious uh, tradition? I, I would say that the increase in tolerance in the Midwest is has been episodic. And um, uh, we, the Midwest went through uh, ser efforts of serious religious prejudice. For example, anti-Semitism uh, was really pretty strong in the Midwest through uh, the 1940s. Minneapolis was once called um, by a California journalist uh, the anti-Semitic capital of the United States. And, you know, uh, was it really? Well, let's put it this way, it was anti-Semitic enough. 
the irony is that the label didn't apply to St. Paul. Uh, and that, of course, Minneapolis was a big, had a reputation for being a Scandinavian Lutheran city and St. Paul a, an Irish Catholic city. Um, but um, there was plenty of documented, we can, we can document the prejudice uh, in Minneapolis. Um, William Bell Riley, who was an internationally known Baptist minister in, in Minneapolis, uh, was a noted anti-Semite and uh, was very active in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s in propounding a lot of anti-Semitic sentiment in the United States. Um, so, so, and we're now, we now see significant anti-Muslim sentiment in the Midwest. We have, we have, a, we have a lot of reaction to diff, different religious groups. So I would say that the Midwest has not always been tolerant um, it has had eras of tolerance from the 60s into the 90s. Um, now, again, as I said, we we have some anti-Muslim sentiment. Um, do we have some anti-Catholicism? Well, we certainly had it in the 1960 presidential election. You know, my dad was a small-town Democrat and got a letter from a third cousin or a fourth cousin, you know, with some little pamphlet published both in Minneapolis and Chicago, which he saved and I have given to the Minnesota Historical Society, um, you know, saying, saying, I can't believe you're really supporting Kennedy or president. Don't you know that our, our country, this is, our, the Pope will rule. Um, so um, it's been up and down. I uh, was recently reading Peter Novick's book, uh, The History of the American uh, History Profession, and uh, one of the sub-themes in that book is anti-Semitism within the history profession. And um, I've been working on my own history of historians, and one of the things I came across was how certain Jewish historians who were having troubles getting jobs in the 30s and 40s, um, the first place they were hired um, were places like the University of South Dakota and the University of Iowa. And in their correspondence, they noted that, you know, people they thought were less anti-Semitic than some of the more traditional, long-standing universities in the East. Does, um, does that sort of observation from these professors surprise you? No, it doesn't, because having taught at Yale for 27 years, I can tell you that the older Jewish members of the Yale faculty that I know um, are very conscious about who was the first Jewish faculty member, who was the second Jewish faculty member. And I'm not sure that I didn't think that I didn't have that sense, that sense as a graduate student at Minnesota in the 1960s that that was a that was a conscious on anyone's in anyone's mind. I mean, Alan Spear was Jewish, the Jewish background, and I don't ever recall. I TA'd for Alan. I as a graduate student. Now, how well do graduate students know faculty? But in any case, as a fa you know, I I knew him. I, you know, I had drinks with him at the Mixers Bar on the on the West Bank of the University of Minnesota. It's not a subject that I ever remember him discussing. John, can you tell us a little bit about your current project and uh, and the book you're working on? Yes, I'm working on a much delayed, often started and stopped and started and stopped project on religion in modern Manhattan. And by that I mean religion in Manhattan from about the 1880s to the 1960s. 
And the reason that I'm doing it is that this is supposed to be the great age of secularization in American culture and society. And I thought, what better place to study the history of American religion in this alleged age of secularization, but in the capital of American secularism, which is surely New York City. I mean, more than Hollywood, I would say. People, would, no one thinks of New York City as a sacred city, and uh, you just think, you no, know, people don't come to New York City to see sacred sites. They should, but they don't. Um, so that's why I'm working on it. Does the Midwesterner Reinhold Niebuhr figure very largely in your project? Well, he will. He's going to be. I am going to have a chapter on theology, and New York City as a as a theological mecca, particularly in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And Niebuhr is going to play a very strong role in that. Um, and um, you know, it, it's hard to say. Does his did his Midwestern origin, his experience in Detroit, for example, as a clergyman? Um, play a role? I think so, um, because um, it, it, he became, in Detroit, he became very attuned to issues of class, but also of prejudice, because he was very uh, active in um, promoting civil rights in Detroit. We've been talking with John Butler, a longtime historian at Yale University about his uh, recent work and his origins in the Midwest. John, I'd like to ask you one last question, um, and that relates to the mission of the Midwestern History Association. We've been trying to make a dent in the larger American history profession and push people to pay a little bit more attention to the Midwest. And um, I just want to get your thoughts about uh, what the best way to do this is and how can we be more effective in the profession um, in terms of being recognized and uh, being seen as a legitimate field and to continue to, to grow and uh, make our influence felt. Well, I think the, uh, first of all, I'm really pleased um, to have given a little help to the Midwestern History Association. And um, I think that the most effective ways to do it are to make it clear to younger historians especially um, that the history of the Midwest is vital to understanding the nature of, this, of the nation in which we live. And um, that it can be intellectually interesting and fascinating and important, that it can be methodologically a place for interesting me methodologies to emerge in, in the history. And I think that the best way to do that is to, <laughs> in a sense, is to invade organizations like the American Historical Association and the Organization of, Amer of American Historians by promoting sessions about the history of the Midwest. Uh, in in, Amer in American history, and by really um, promoting really good books and articles, by giving prizes. I think it's wonderful that the association has a book prize, it has an article prize, it has a prize for distinguished service, uh, long-time careers, um, it has a prize for public history, and these need m much more publicity. And I'm pleased we're doing this interview, especially in the Minnesota Historical Society, because I think I'm, a, I'm enough of a provincial Minnesotan myself to know that the Minnesota Historical Society may be 
the largest single state historical society in the country in terms of its staff, its programs, its influence, its reach into the public. And the Minnesota Historical Society is a model for any state's historical society. The huge reach, of, I've been to exhibits here in which you have to stand in line for an hour and a half to get in because people want to come and they're, they're, and they're not, you know, it's, it's not just a, a group of historians who want to get in, it's the general public who wants to get in. And so uh, the more that we can, um, the more, the more that the, that people in the Midwest understand the vitality of their own history, the more the the profession is enriched um, and enlarged by understanding that the history of the country is not just bi-coastal. In other words, uh, there's a way in which I love to be back in the flyover zone. <laughs> My phone doesn't ring as often, uh, but um, you know, too much attention is paid to the history of the East, and too much attention is his paid to the history of the West Coast, and not enough attention is paid to the history of the Midwest and the Midwestern areas. That if we really wanted to stretch things, we could even go to Texas. Okay, I don't want to do that, but we could do that if we wanted to. It's way too hot for me. But in any case. Um, uh, I think that that being active in all in these other associations is really um, important. Thanks to John Butler for joining us today on Heartland History. I am your host, John Lauk. This episode was produced by Dana Brown. Thank you, John, once again for coming out and joining us here at the Minnesota Historical Society. You're welcome. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.